Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be verse 21 to 26. Um, if, you would, if you came up to me and you asked me the following question, Michael, are you an angry person? This would be my answer. No. I, in fact, I don't think most of the people who are with me would say that guy's life is defined by anger. I don't think our staff would say that. I don't think my friends would say that. Like, I'm a pretty lighthearted, jovial guy. I mean, I can be pretty serious and intense, right? And I, I've gotten angry at a number of people in my life, for sure. Some of you have gotten angry at me. Some of us have gotten angry at each other. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're an angry person, right? And I would probably say I have moments of anger, but it doesn't really define me. It doesn't really define my relationships. And so until a couple years ago, uh, my daughter, who was about four, almost five, she had a conversation with my wife. Now, this conversation was so striking and embarrassing that I decided to make sure I documented it word for word. So at the time, my four-year-old, almost five-year-old daughter comes up to my wife and says, how about we get dad a book for his birthday? Okay, intrigued, my wife says, what book would you like to get him? She says, an adult book on parenting. All right, cool, all right. What do you want daddy to learn, my wife says. And here's, what, here's her response. Um, how to get mad and not yell. Mere guilty, right? And I'd love to say that was just a season, right? And all of you are like, glad I'm not Michael right now. Wouldn't want to have to say that. Guilty, right? You know what I'm talking about. But in that moment, I realized that anger is real, it's in me. Yeah, I tame it a lot, but it's there. And sometimes it's just under the surface. And sometimes the safest, right environments expose that. And in that moment, my daughter became to me a mirror and she showed me the true state of my heart. And this is really what Jesus is gonna do with anger and another, a number of other issues in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, it's gonna be a mirror. And he's going to put the mirror up to your heart, and he's going to make you stare your true self in the face. And I'm going to be honest, it's gut-wrenching. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, or if you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, and you walk away thinking, I'm a good person, you are not paying attention at all. Like, you have completely, 100% missed the point of what Jesus is trying to get at. Which, one of the major points of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is you are not a good person. You are are a lawbreaker, right? That, that's gonna be one of the most important things that he wants everyone in this room, myself included, to understand. You're not good. You are a lawbreaker. And the second thing he wants to do is show you, but there is a better way. And so what Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna take one of the 10 commandments after another. He's gonna go through a handful of them and he's gonna show them that they are actually breaking every single one of the 10 commandments. These people who thought, I'm a good person, I follow the 10 commandments, what he's gonna show them is actually you're not a good person and you're breaking all of them and you're guilty before God, but there's good news, there's a better way. And so if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you think you're a good person, I'm just gonna tell you, you're not really hearing exactly what Jesus is saying. Now there's an accusation in the Sermon on the Mount um, toward Jesus that he is responding to. He's defending himself. And the accusation might go something like this. Jesus wants to destroy the law and create anarchy and chaos. 
Like that was the concern that the Jewish and religious leaders had and they were spreading these messages even though this is the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's already having to defend himself against lies and slander about his true motivations and intentions. And is Jesus here to get rid of and destroy and abolish the law? And the answer is no. In fact, what Jesus wants to tell them is destroy the law? I am here to obey every single letter of this law. And unlike you guys, I'm going to obey it from the heart, not just externally. I'm going to obey it from the very core of who I am with joy. Jesus isn't here to abolish it. But here you're going to find Jesus is having to defend himself. So open up your notes with me. Uh, Point number one in your app or your uh, sermon notes is my anger incriminates me. Verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he's trying to make a case. You're not good. So what does he do? He pulls out the Ten Commandments, the basis for which they all think they're good people. And he says, can we all just agree for a moment that this is a good commandment? You shall not murder. And the answer everybody is, is that good? Yes, awesome. And if you murder, um, here's the punishment under a Jewish court. You would be killed. Your life would be taken from you. Um, This is a tribal society. They did not have an incarceration system that was of any benefit whatsoever. And so here's what would happen. You murder somebody. Life is so valuable that your life will cease to exist from this point forward. And so they all agreed. If you kill somebody, all right, we're on the same page. And then he says in verse 22, but I say to you. And as he says this, don't you feel like he's going to contradict the law for a moment? He's not going to do that. He's actually going to double down on the law. And here's what he says. And I want you to pay attention in verse 22. You're going to see the word, my brother, in purple. Okay? It's going to come up throughout the message. Um, And I want you to do is in the margin of your mind over here, just take mental note of this word every time it comes up. And at the end of the sermon, I'm going to bring this thing full circle. Sound good? So here's what we find. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with who? His brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, I can imagine they say, some lawyer says, Jesus, um, the law does not give you permission to prosecute intent. The law gives you permission to prosecute a violation that you have acted on that is measurable. That's what the law gives you the freedom to do. And at this point, what Jesus is going to build to throughout the Sermon on the Mount, throughout his teachings, is that you're right. On a human level, the Jewish courts have limitations. They cannot prosecute intent. But there is a court that is higher than the Jewish court. And it is the court where Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the judge of the universe, will judge all people. And I want you to hear me. He is smarter than all the justices of the Jewish court. He has the authority to judge the intentions and the desires of the heart. Now, isn't that scary? That that should be petrifying to a degree here. I want to read to you Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Now, automatically, there's a hurdle to overcome with almost everybody in this room. If you have been in church for more than a month, okay, you've probably heard a pastor or somebody teach on this verse. And it starts off and it says, for the word of God, okay? And immediately you are conditioned to believe this is what? The Bible, okay? But in John 1.1, what is the word of God? 
Jesus. And I'm going to make a strong contention, and I think the text is with 100% um, certainty going to validate what I'm going to say to you. This is not talking about the Bible at all. This is talking about Jesus. So here's what he says. For the word of God is living and active. Let me give you a real-time like, translation or interpretation. He's not dead. He's not inactive. It's not some deist version of God that created the earth, wound it up like a clock, and walked away and let it tick on. He is very active and engaged in the affairs of this world. He's living, and he's active, and he's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It's also discerning. Last time I checked, an inanimate object like a word or a book or a written word cannot discern. People discern. Well, here's what it discerns. Not just what you do, but the thoughts and the intentions of what? The heart. Well, it goes on. And now this word of God is personified. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom, do you see that this is not about an inanimate object, this is about a person, Jesus Christ, the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And here's the reality. The Jewish law can only prosecute murder. But in God's law, he prosecutes the entire train of thought and emotional sequence that leads up to it. So let's just take a moment. Let's forget about Old Testament law for a moment because none of you are under it. The majority of you are not Jewish. Let's, let's talk about something um, that scholars, theologians call the moral law. And this is actually a category that the Apostle Paul speaks to. The moral law is this universal sense of right and wrong, good and bad, that God has infused on the conscience and the heart and the mind of every person that has ever lived in the entire world world. <clears throat> the moral law is like gravity. Everywhere you go, there you find it, okay? It does not matter what generation, what millennia, what century, where you are on the world, whether it's a small tribal group across the world or it's an empire in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Everywhere you go, you're going to find that there's this thing called the moral law, this sense, this intrinsic sense of right and wrong that God has put in the hearts and minds of everybody. Again, it's like gravity. And here's what you find, that everywhere you go, this law exists, and almost every single person in the world even violates the moral law. Now, let's, let's just carry this out. Verse 22, we're going to watch as this unfolds, and I want you to keep this category of moral law in your mind. He says that everyone who is angry with who? His brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults who? His brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He takes this beyond just the Jewish courts and he says, let me tell you the standard by which God himself will judge on the day of judgment. The command on a human level is do not murder, but God is not just simply concerned with what you do, he is concerned with who you are. Sin is sin before God, whether it is acted on or it is inside of you and invisible and a secret. And so there are two things that make you guilty before God, not the Jewish human law, but before God of breaking the murder commandment. And the first one is this, anger of your heart. Anybody experience this? Let's just call it unrighteous anger. I'll just put my hand up here. Like there's a lot of moments in my life where there are feels that I feel and I don't tell people about it because I don't want anybody to know about it. 
And they are not okay. They are not righteous. They are not good. They are not holy. And if those things were verbalized, they would be of no benefit to anybody, but would make me just look like a terrible person. And when I understand, the majority of you have this also. But there's a second level. Anger expressed with your mouth makes you, in God's divine court, guilty of murder. Now, you may not like this, but this is the divine law that God is orchestrating here. Now, he says this. Even if you do these you will be guilty of hell. Does that feel like a powerful statement? Like this is a serious threat. What Jesus is trying to get to is say, you might not have physically taken someone's life, but you are just as guilty because the very core and basis of that infraction is inside of your heart. And by the way, God cares just as much about your heart as he does what you do. Hell here is a reference to the Hinnom Valley. It's just southwest of, of Jerusalem. And uh, former kings would practice human, especially human infant sacrifice um, in this place. And Jesus' day was called the Valley of Slaughter. And uh, it was a garbage dump. It was this perpetual fire that would just keep going and going. And so when Jesus wanted to give a point of reference to judgment in hell, he points over to the Hinnom Valley. Literally, this is the, the Gehenna of hell. And he points to this. And at this point, Here's what you're going to be thinking if you are at least a little rebellious or like resistant even to Jesus. Michael, Jesus, I'm not an angry person. I am better than that. There are people that are worse for me. Let me introduce to some of you, some of you, this is an old game, the anger spectrum. I love the anger spectrum because what the anger spectrum does is it helps you realize that anger is not just one singular emotion. It starts all the way at the beginning stages with something like irritation. It's that little thing inside of you. You're like, eh, and you do a really good job. Some of you, most of you don't. A really good job of trying to hide your irritation, but irritation grows to frustration. It gets a little bit more interesting. It's a little bit more perpetual. It's not just momentary, but it's like irritation after irritation turns into frustration, and then it's aggravation. Has your spouse ever said, like, like have you ever said to your spouse, I'm aggravated? Like, you're on the, you're on the verge of anger, right? And then when you're like, I'm angry, like, this is a different category, isn't it? Like, when you say I'm aggravated versus I'm angry. But then something happens with anger. Anger that is untamed, anger that is unchecked, comes alive and has profound negative impact in your life. It grows into bitterness. It's this ugly, dark vice that is so sinister inside of you, and it starts to kill you from the inside out one moment after another. And then what happens is malice. Malice is intent to harm, intent to wrath. And malice is not always physical, by the way. Malice is when you sit in the bathroom and you turn over or in your bed or in the shower or by yourself or you're driving over and over and over in your head. If I could just say this to them, if they could replay that moment, if I had another chance, I'd sock them in the face. If I could have my way with them, I'd use this word and that word. And when I get to talk to them, you know that feeling? Anyone? Again, am I the only guilty one in this room? Right? That's malice. Okay? Wrath is the pouring out of your anger where in unrighteousness you decide to take your own vengeance and punishment verbally, physically, or otherwise. Now, do you start to see how you are actually angry? We're just gonna, we're gonna continue to double down on this. Anger is like pregnancy. Um, that's funny. My wife was in the first service, thank God. All right. Um, no, but it's, it's, it's quiet at first. You can't see it. Um, someone in our church was pregnant for a month and didn't even know it. That's awesome, right? So sometimes you don't even know it's there, right? And then, and then you start, sorry, a trimester. Sorry, that was a whole trimester. I was like, wow, you're pregnant for a whole trimester. That's amazing. Um, and, then, and then it starts to show, right? It starts to show, and eventually it's going to come out of you. It has one destination. It has one trajectory, <laughs> right? 
Did I say something inappropriate? <laughs> okay, just making sure. In my head there was nothing, but it might have happened. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. So there are two words for anger in the Greek New Testament. Just get our heads around this. The first is thumos. Thumos is uh, this irritation, this aggravation. It starts to grow, but it's mostly internal. It's reactive, different things like that, okay? But thumos untamed turns into what's called orge. And orge is the word where we would get our word orgy from. It's this idea of um, passionate, and it is unrestrained, and it's over the top, and it's not okay, and there's something malicious about it. You can see on the spectrum how thumos ultimately turns into orge. There's just a natural progression of anger. And so the Greeks kind of had two different words to categorize this. Are you in thumos or orge? And and so they they start to understand that, look, there's a point where anger is fine, right? Anger is a righteous emotion. It is from God. God gets angry and he doesn't sin. Uh, Ephesians says, be angry and do not sin. But there's a point where your anger is not just unrighteous internally, but it becomes to act out externally. And this is where it becomes orge. This is where it becomes unhealthy and it violates and hurts people all around you. And again, this can be verbal. It can be um, emotional, passive-aggressive, aggressive, or physical. And here's what, here's what I think the Greek words tell us is that your orge, when you get to these places, it originates from untamed thumos. That there's something about the Christian experience that when you experience thumos, our requirement as followers of Jesus is to tame this and to release it. An anger that if it's not tamed, it grows and it has a necessary outcome and eventually it gives birth to wrath. Now, I want to just take a moment because there's going to be some of you in this room and you're like, okay, I've gotten angry at times. I do see that there's anger in me. And here is your retort to me. Pastor Michael, I am a good person, okay? I get it. You believe, and there are many people who believe to the core of their being that they are a good person. I would like the honor and the privilege to try to prove to you that you're a terrible human being. Ready? Okay, so I want to do this, uh, and I want to just show you the good person law. So it doesn't matter to me if you are a Muslim, if you are a Jew, if you're a Hindu, if you're a Christian. If you were to be judged by the law you claim to follow, I would like to tell you this. You are guilty of the laws that you claim to follow. You are flat out guilty. And you're not just sort of guilty, you are really guilty, okay? And you're thinking, no, Michael, I'm a good person. So here, here's the good person law. The mantra of good people everywhere is this, ready? Good people go to heaven. I'm a good person. This is like the core conviction. If you want more on this, we dismantled this entire law last week in last week's sermon. So how does a good person self-define and know without a shadow of a doubt that they are a good person? Well, they take the good person test. (laughs) This isn't a joke. Like this is literally subconsciously how people process this. All you have to do is ask people, how do you know you're a good person? And they're gonna give you two fundamental answers. And here's the first answer. They're gonna answer this question in the affirmative. Am I better than the bad people in my life, especially the ones on TV? <laughs> that, that literally, like when you ask, well, how do you know you're a good person? Well, I'm not as bad as, and they pick out a TV personality. And then inevitably, if you keep probing, they'll start to find a couple really terrible people in their life. And so this is actually the first metric by which people determine that I'm a good person. Uh, and so here's the second question that they have to answer in an affirmative. Do some people 
perceive me as kind and good. And they'll say, well, of course, everybody doesn't think I'm kind and good, but there's God, like, the, like this person does? And I'm like, yeah, but you've known them for a week and they actually don't know you. Do the people who live with you think that you are a kind and good person? But this is how the American justifies themselves. I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as the people on TV. I'm better than most of the people in my life. And Jimmy, Bob, and Billy Sue, they think I'm good. Therefore, I'm good. Now, I'd like to take the moment just to dismantle this for a moment. Uh, I know that there's going to be, in so, you might be listening online, you might be in this room, and you're thinking, that guy's a jerk. Trust me. I want to give you a big hug. I want to go eat a meal with you and just hang out, okay? But as a preacher, we have to honestly proclaim what God's word says. So I want to just try to help you understand this, why you're going to fail the good person test every single time. So I want you to think through your bitterness, your secrets, your judgmentalism, all the people you did not help, but you should have. All the people you didn't encourage, but should have. All the people you discouraged, but shouldn't have. And maybe the people that you shouldn't have helped, but you did. I think that's going to get a lot of you. All the things you did when you were younger, hear me, you tell yourself that doesn't count anymore because enough time passed and now you're absolved. Says who? The good person law. Think of all the people you avoided, but you should have loved. All the times you gossiped or even the times you just listened to gossip. All the people that you should have talked to about Jesus and did not. Now let's talk about things that are close to the heart of God. Um, think about the time in God's word you neglected. The money you didn't tithe. Drop the mic, walk away. The amount of times you didn't go to church but you should have. The times you went to church but weren't really here. The times you sang and didn't mean it. The ministry you committed to serve but bailed out on. The ministry you served in but were half-hearted and on your phone most of the time. The white lies, the arguments with your spouse, the arguments with your kids, the arguments with your parents, the resentment towards your neighbors, the conflict you have not dealt with, the passivity in you, your aggression, your passive aggression, okay, your insecurity, your overcompensation. I could just go on. And let me be clear, that's my list, Okay? That's my list. And here's what I know. The majority of you, you can relate to the, to the majority of things on that list. And you know what? I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of your hypocrisy. The very laws you claim, the goodness you claim, you dig down. I'm just here to tell you, anecdotally, you're not good people. And I am not a good person. And the only way that I can declare myself to be a good person is to hide the inner parts and secrets of my life with the hopes that the good God who, who gives us a good test and lets good people go to heaven doesn't care about what happens on the inside. I'm really banking on the good person test that there is no metric for what happens in my mind and my heart, my souls, or my desires, or my youth. Which brings us to the good person problem. We're just not good. And I love when I have a hunch and scripture affirms what I'm saying. Here's what Romans 3 says. As it is written, none is righteous. And I love how the Apostle Paul like, anticipates like objection and he says, no, <laughs> I hear your thought, but, 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 but no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. Do you know why you seek for God? Because he sought you first. That's it. That's it. No one seeks for God. All, some, all have turned aside. And together they have become worthless or useless. No one does good. But there's got to be some. No, not even one. Like, is there any confusion about what God's trying to communicate to us through this? So here's one of the things Jesus is trying to do. You may not have murdered, but God judges the heart. And if he's judging the heart, you're damned. 
And if you're under the moral law, I'm sorry. The Old Testament religious law, sorry. The good person law, sorry. You've got no righteousness. You're not good. And honestly, this is one of the hardest lies to dismantle. Because if we're not good, and if there is something after this, we know we're not getting in. That's petrifying. And so most people double down. They need the good person law to be true, true and they need to be seen as a good person in their own mind. Number two, their anger is an opportunity. So I want, I want us to watch as Jesus shows us a better way, but there's something really interesting that if you're just reading this quickly, you know how sometimes when we read the Bible, it's like a task, right? And we just gotta get through it. And our Bible plan says, I gotta read a whole chapter today and you just got other things to do. You know that feeling? This is one of those moments where you just kind of need to stop because there's something missing here. And I think Jesus's audience, here's what they wanna say. And the reason I think this is because it's what I want to say to me if I was preaching. Okay, Michael, I'm angry. What do I do with my anger? Right? Anybody want to know that? He passes right by it, and he says, we're not going to talk about your anger. We're going to talk about their anger. And I want you to understand why this is happening. So over the last 2,000 years, every generation um, of Christians has this doctrine or this thing, this drum that they beat, that they're really, really, really passionate about. And it seems to consume like all of their writing and all of their preaching and all of their thinking, like there's these big drums, right? So you go back to like the fourth century, it was the sacraments. You kept hearing about the sacraments over and over again. You go to the Reformation, which happened in the 16th century. They were just beating the drum of the purity of the gospel over and over, Martin Luther, John Calvin, the list goes on and on. For the Puritans, the drum that they beat over and over again was holiness, holiness, holiness. Like every generation of Christians has this drum that they beat. In the 20th century fundamentalists, it was alcohol or the King James Version or no dancing or whatever rules they could make up, right? And so like they had their drums that they beat, right? And then the liberals, right? It's every liberal sermon you go to, it's social justice, social justice, social justice. It's the only drum that they beat over and over again. And over the last 20 years, if you look at what feels like the vast majority of books in evangelical Christianity, they're getting back to this reformation, purity of the gospel, purity of the gospel. Everywhere you go, gospel, gospel, gospel. There's this drum that Christians tend to beat all at the same time. Well, I want to take you back to the first century, and I want to tell you one of the major drums that got beat over and over and over again, and often we don't notice it because it's not a high value for us. But if you start reading the New Testament through this lens, you start to see that this is a very common theme. It's a, it is a beat. It is an emphasis. It is a focus that is so strong. And here it is, unity. And the greatest threat to their unity is not from out there. It is from in here. It is amongst us. And it is our untamed orge at one another. That is it. So as elders, we can deal with the lies and doctrinal er errants or uh, errors that come into our church. We can start to protect people from untruths and different things like that. But can I tell you one of the most difficult things that a group of pastors and elders will ever get our heads and hearts and hands around? It is unresolved anger and conflict amongst the people of God, which makes us impotent. It is this issue of division and people frustrated with each other. It is the greatest threat internally to our being effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here's the understanding, if you were a follower of Jesus in the first century, um, 
If you're angry, kill it. You just get rid of it. So the, the preacher in the 21st century would get up and he would say something like this. That's me. Everyone's angry. We totally get it. I know it's hard. Let's overcome. The preacher of the first century would get up and say, no, you go get before the Lord and you kill it now because if you give it an inch, it'll take a mile. You do not let this thing live. The moment you have orge in your life, you tame it and you control